a little bit different, but why do you guys, why would you do a lymphatic treatment? Because you're trying to move lymph. Okay, so you're trying to move fluid. So why would you have fluid outside of the lymphatic system? Like why would this happen? So we always have exchange, the cardiovascular system, goes out into interstitial fluid, right? You always have the seepage leakage, but that's supposed to get picked up by the lymphatic system, which then dumps back into the cardiovascular system, and it just keeps going, right? So this shouldn't happen if the lymphatics are picking up any extra fluid. So let's just say your lymphatics are okay. Why would that happen? Um, okay, so you could have edema, but it wouldn't be lymphedema, but you could have edema because of cardiovascular issues, you could have edema because of pulmonary issues, you could have edema because of liver issues, but if it was true lymphedema and it wasn't an issue with the lymphatics, why do you think that would happen? What does water follow? Solutes. So if I had an issue with the cardiovascular system where I had my proteins leaking out, so now my interstitial fluid had more protein than my lymphatic and my cardiovascular. What happens to the fluid? It stays in the interstitium. So that can be an issue. And then number two, you can also get that the lymphatics just aren't picking up the extra fluid, right? So what do you think, what do you think might be a common cause of this, a lymphedema? Oh, definitely, so if you had these surgical issues with the lymphatic system, so if you had removal of the lymphatic systems, like lymph nodes and things like that. Um, my pancreas uncle had a transplant, mm -hmm. and it's 20 years old now, okay. I think. So he always has like kidney in one leg. Commonly? Yes. Okay, so this C. diff is probably more secondary to the kidney issue and not so much the lymphedema, but that could be second, the lymphedema could be secondary. So like yeah. Most commonly found in hospitals. Most commonly found in hospitals. Um, so the lymphedema could be secondary from the kidney, but the C. diff wouldn't necessarily be associated with the lymphedema. So let me ask you guys a question. A person comes in with this. Is that going to like that is actually called stage three elephantitis, yes. But do you think that elevation is going to no, drain no, this? No. Okay. Do you think that one lymphatic treatment is going to drain no. this? Okay, so this is the thing. What we're trained in lymphatic drainage is wonderful and it's great for acute techniques. When it comes to lymphedema, there's an issue with the lymphatic system. So when you're doing your lymphatic treatments, the idea is that the lymphatic system is supposed to pick up all that extra fluid and it's supposed to dump it back into the cardiovascular system. But there's an issue here. Either there's too much protein or the lymphatics aren't working. So how are you going to treat this? Are you gonna do lymphatic drainage? Is it gonna make a difference? Yeah, it might, 
It might, but as soon as they put their legs down from the table, guess what happens? It's right back there. So if you are interested in doing lymphatic drainage treatment or lymphedema treatments, I would strongly recommend that you do do additional training because a lymphatic treatment per se is really not gonna have much of an effect. It might have an effect for a few minutes, but as soon as they get off the table and start walking, it's gonna come right back. So there's more things like bandaging and stockings and actually like hosieries and clothing that people will make to be able to ha hopefully maintain and minimize this. So something that we should, so this is stage three. This is the worst stage, okay? So if you had a stage zero subclinical, what does that tell you? Zero. You see nothing. So there's a little bit of accumulation, but you can't tell. There might be like a millimeter difference, right? Now when you get to stage one, you're gonna be able to see the edema. You're gonna be able to see that the limb is larger than the other side. But the thing with stage one is as soon as you elevate, it goes away. And when you poke on it, and you take your finger off, it goes away. So the pitted edema does not stay. So it's really great. If you've got a stage one, this is something you can treat. This is something you can have an effect on, more so, because you can educate them about elevating. You can educate them about self-lymphatic so that they can do it on themselves when they're not coming to see you. Now stage two is a much bigger problem. Stage two, you're gonna be able to see it, but now when they elevate, it makes no difference. It stays that size. When you poke on it, it stays. So that pitted formation, it stays. So there's a lot of a bigger issue here. Now you've got some fibrosing going on. Right? Because when you put your finger in, it stays there. It doesn't rectify itself. So if in this case, if they've got a stage two, I would really strongly recommend that you do refer out to someone who is lymphatic, who does have like specialty training in lymphatic drainage. And then stage three would be this, elephantitis, which basically means a complete deformation of the limb. Now, what happens, so if this limb is completely deformed, that means all the skin is stretched out, that means all the fascia is stretched out, that means now the blood vessels are a little bit squished. So do you, what do you think is gonna happen to the skin here? It's gonna be normal, it's gonna have its properly vasculature. So it might start to ulcerate, it could start to fibrose, it could start to become very dry, it could start to have little dimples in it, which we call peau d'orange. So you know when you look at it, an orange, the skin of an orange has little dimples in it, that'll actually happen. What happens to the nails? Well, they start to get thicker and they start to become yellow. So any of your appendages start to get affected. You sweat glands get affected. Okay, yeah. Would the skin discolor or just the nails? It can. Yes, the skin can color because when it starts to fibrose, it'll start to become a little bit more like a yellowish brownish when it starts to become thicker. Yeah. So we definitely need to know about the stages of lymphedema. So, most common causes cancer treatment. So radiation and chemotherapy, one of the side effects of chemo and radiation is possible cancer down the line because they're carcinogenic. But the other issue is also that it'll affect the lymphatic system which can lead to lymphedema. Now interesting, if someone comes to see you and you know there's a history of cancer and all of a sudden they're developing lymphedema, please send them back to their oncologist. Lymphedema development after cancer, so it could be 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, it's usually the first sign of cancer returning. Okay, so that's really important. 
So if someone is developing lymphedema and you know there's a history of cancer, please get them back to their oncologist. I'm not saying it is cancer, but it is oftentimes the first sign of cancer. Okay, so that's something that you guys can pick up on and you can get early detection because that's really important. All right, so yeah, I mean, we can learn about a lot. I don't really care if you guys know about the different types. Oftentimes this develops when you're an adult, because it's oftentimes secondary to the more one, the more common ones you'll see is usually secondary to cancer treatments. So I'm not really too concerned about the different types. Please know the levels. So clinical one, two, and three. Three is where there's complete deformation, where you have trophic changes. We talked about the nails and the skin and the hair being different, and also the complete annihilation of that limb. It looks completely different. It's completely deformed. So that's really important. So, what does it feel like? When people come in with lymphedema, they usually say, my leg's achy. Like if someone has edema, does anybody here know anybody with edema? At the end of pregnancy, if anybody's been pregnant, what did your feet feel like? Sore. <laughs> <laughs> or if you've known anybody who's been pregnant, what do they say in the third trimester? My feet hurt. My feet are sore. My feet are achy. Because there's excessive fluid buildup. That's exactly what lymphedema feels like. They're going to talk about a fullness, an achiness in that limb. Okay, so that's really important. Now, decreased flexibility, you'd have to be at a stage two or three before you had decreased flexibility. With subclinical or stage one, you usually don't have that. So the pitting is important, and you're going to do that test. Because if it pits, or it doesn't, we'll give you an indication what stage they're at, which will give you an indication whether or not this is something you should be treating or referring out for, right? So that's gonna be important. Um, the trophic changes we already talked about, that's really important. Now, you can sometimes get ulcerations. So if there's so much pressure on the fascia and the skin, it can start to deteriorate. So you can start to get ulcerations. Uh, you, well, once it ulcerates, now you have an open environment and you can get bacterial infections like cellulitis. But that open environment, you can get seepage of fluid. So it's not really pus-like, it's a little bit more fluid-like than pus-like, but that is something that would be really late stage. So that usually doesn't happen until a stage three. Someone had a question. Um, I was, I really confused about pitting. Is I thought pitting happened in the later stages? No. It rectifies itself in the earlier stages. Yeah, it so it either doesn't pit or when, it, when you do that, it stays, okay. like for minutes and minutes and minutes. Stage one, when you do that and you take it off, within a few seconds it comes right back. But that's called Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Because when you put it in, it pits. Okay. Right? So have an idea. Again, training is really important. So stage zero, stage one. Go to town, sure, lots of education. Stage two or three, you may want to get some additional training for that. So if someone actually comes in with lymphedema, do you actually treat them and that's an actual thing? Because I thought if like you had lymphedema secondary to like cardiogenic issues or like But is that lymphedema or is that edema? I guess edema. But so it, this here this be the same like like the fluid that you're pushing, you'd be shunting it to the heart, like can the heart handle it? Because this normally if there are no cardiovascular issues or respiratory issues or liver issues, yes, it can handle it. Okay. But this is the thing. Typically with lymphedema, well, even if you treat them, you're moving very little fluid. Yeah. 
because as soon as they stand up again, gravity does its thing, and you've got the seeping out. And the problem is you don't have the reef uptake, right? Because the lymphatic system's a problem. So I would agree with you. If there's a cardiovascular issue, would I ever do lymphatic drainage? Well, no, you don't want to overload the heart. If it's a respiratory issue, same thing. If they have COPD, I want to be very careful with that. If they have a liver issue, let's say they have cirrhosis of the liver, I would not want to do that, right? So you do need to know about their health issues for sure. But if it is truly lymphedema and not just edema, lymphedema, we don't, the problem here is that nobody can fix lymphedema. And when you have lymphedema, the medical doctors will give you medications and they'll give you diuretics. And guess what that does? Makes you pee a lot, makes your kidneys work a whole lot. And guess what it does for lymphedema? Nothing. And it's still yet prescribed. Why? Because we don't know what else to do. So, and, and it's a problem, whether you go see an oncologist or a vascular surgeon, whether you go see an internist, no matter what doctor you go see at this time, we don't know how to treat lymphedema because we don't truly know what the cause is. So we are really some of the best people to treat lymphedema and with your additional training, that is really the best we can do. We can get them some relief for a couple of days with the bandaging and with the hosiery, but. Would it ever be like a medical emergency in a sense where you no, this is interstitial fluid, so it's it's outside of that. No, um, but if you do have ulcerations, in that case, it you could lead to infection, which could lead to sepsis, sepsis, which could lead to death. So would never like. No, but on the flip side, you could also have early detection for cancer if this is secondary to a cancer erupting. So in that case, I would say yes, that would be really important. But no, this would not typically end up with something like that. No. So, yes. So, and this is where I say, if you're subclinical or stage one, you can have an effect on them. Once you're stage two, by increasing that fluid, you're increasing the vascularity to the tissue. By increasing the vascularity to the tissue, you're actually sending possible more interstitial fluid out. So yes, I would agree. And just the lymphatic drainage itself is gonna do this much when you're at stage two or three, unless you bandage, unless you've got the hosiery, unless you've got, right? So. Yes, I, I would strongly not recommend. Like, I don't do lymphatic treatments. I have someone I refer to because she's been trained in that. Um, so yes, I would be careful to do that, especially if they're in stage two or three, for sure. Okay, so these are some of the things you will be doing if you decide to do your additional training in lymphedema. You'll be doing your lymphatic training, lymphatic drainage treatments, which are really specific. Basically, it goes from the top of the head to the feet. So, and the techniques are very interesting. Bandaging is basically almost like doing a compression. Um, you know when you have a sprained ankle? Yeah, like a wrap. So, and they would literally, just like you would with a sprained ankle, they would start from the toes and work their way up, right? And it would be really, really tight. Um, skin care, that's gonna be really, you can do this, even if you're not treating lymphedema, you can look at this. If someone comes in with lymphedema, just like as if they had diabetes, you're always looking at the feet, right? because the feet are a major issue. So you look between the toes, you look at the nails, you look at the bottom of the feet, because you could be the first person that recognizes that there is ulcerations, and that's really important. Okay, so things that we can talk about, we can talk about elevating the limb in stage one, but really after that it's not gonna do a whole lot. They still prescribe diuretics, which do not a whole lot, not very helpful, 
And then the supportive sleeves, so everybody talks about the um, compression stockings, which are wonderful. If you're in stage one, the compression stockings are actually quite helpful. But once you get to stage two or three, the compression stockings are actually really painful. Um, even if you get a lighter version, they're not having an effect. They're not as painful, but they're not having an effect. So you really do need to have more special techniques when you get into stage two or three. So this is something you will see, I guarantee you. I've probably referred to the lady that I referred to in the South End. I've probably referred three or four cases this year that I won't treat. So it is wow. fairly, sorry, like in the last like 12 months kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it is something you will definitely see. So whether or not you decide to treat it is up to you. Now, one thing I do want to talk about a little bit with lymphatic training or lymphatic drainage treatments. Um, so we know as soon as you take the bandage off, what's going to happen? As soon as you take the hosiery off, what's going to happen? So this is the tough thing about doing lymphatic treatments. If you're really going to have an effect, typically they see these people every day or every second day. So the lady I refer to, when she does lymphatic treatments, she knows that she has to see these people. So there's lots of education that she teaches them what they need to be doing, um, but she almost sees them five days a week. This gets really expensive when you're charging $80, so she doesn't. When she does a lymphatic training or lymphatic treatments on her patients, she's actually reduced her rate so that it is more affordable. So it is something to think about because it is something you're going to want to be doing repetitively because, again, there's no fix for this, right? Well, you're gonna, well, they're gonna, you're probably gonna do some bandaging. You may do some hosiery. You may even, if you've gotten into clothing, you may even do some clothing for them. Um, so in that case, yes. But again, the bandaging, you're only gonna have in for a couple of days. So once that bandaging comes off, what happens? Which is great. They're gonna see you every couple of days, probably. But again, is it fixing it? It's helping with the achiness, it's helping with their symptoms, it's helping them be more mobile, but again, it's, it's not fixing the issue. So at this time, everything we do for lymphatic drainage, for lymphedema, is palliative. Unfortunately. Okay. Hemochromatosis. Okay. We're going to talk about anemia today as well. When we talk about anemia, what are we talking about? What is anemia? Okay, anemia could be decreased red blood cells or could just be decreased hemoglobin. <laughs> could I have a normal amount of red blood cells, but they don't have the four hemoglobin components on each red blood cell? Is that possible? Yeah. Yes. So I don't necessarily have to have a decreased red blood cell count. My red blood cell count could be fine but it may not be all of the hemoglobin attaching to oxygen. So that's what's going on there. Hemochromatosis is too much iron in the blood. So how do you treat anemia? Is anybody anemic here? So what's the treatment? Iron supplements. Okay, so why would you supplement with iron? Why would you supplement with iron? Iron stabilizes hemoglobin, which would then increase your oxygen carrying capacity. 
Okay, so that's the treatment. If I tell you with hemochromatosis, it's too much iron in the blood, what happens when you have too much of something in the blood? Okay, well, the blood could become thicker, but when you have too much of anything, what, hap what does your body do? Okay, so how does it get rid of it? Okay, maybe you could pee it out. Store it. Okay, so if I have too much iron, where can I store it? Sure, liver, where else? Could I store it in the brain? Could I store it in the heart? What about the lungs? What about the spleen? What about the pancreas? So, if I stored my excess iron in the brain, does anybody have a problem with that? Yes. The brain. Well, now you've got neurological tissue that's non-functioning, so this could look like an encephalopathy. Could I deposit iron in the liver? Could this look like liver fibrosis or liver cirrhosis? Could I deposit this in the pancreas and all of a sudden have diabetic issues? Could I deposit it in the lungs and all of a sudden it looks like COPD? Or could I deposit it in the heart and all of a sudden it looks like a cardiovascular issue? So, this is the problem. When you have too much iron, the body doesn't want too much iron in the blood, it's gonna store it. And it's gonna store it anywhere. In the kidneys. Again, problem, because is that gonna damage the glomerulus? Yes. 100%. So, what do you think the treatment for too much iron in the blood is? <coughs> well, how do you decrease iron? How, like, how do you do that? I don't know. I was told before that apparently, like, your cannon can like bond to it if you don't. Well, you would have to ingest a lot. A lot of yeah. Drink all the wine. So, you have too much iron in your blood. So, if you took out blood, would you get rid of iron? Yes. That's, it's phlebotomy. It's called bloodletting. So, I actually have a patient with hemochromatosis. He's stable now, but he wasn't diagnosed until he was in his 30s. He started having a lot of like difficulty breathing. He's a carpenter, so he was having a hard time at work. He was, he was starting to faint. He was starting to have seizures. They had no idea what was going on. Finally, they figured out that he had too much iron. He had hemochromatosis, which was affecting his brain, which was affecting his, his lungs. So they got him on bloodletting. So at this time, at the, in his 30s, he was having to go every second day. It was like really bad. He had a ton of iron. So every second day he did that for three months and they basically took blood out of him. And then when they reevaluated his iron, it had dropped. So then they did it to every week. So every week he'd go to RVH and they'd basically take out blood. And they reevaluate his iron and then it started going every month. So now he goes every month. And what they've told him to do, which I don't know how right this is, but anyways, they basically told him rather than keep going to the hospital to do a phlebotomy or bloodletting, go and give blood every month. I don't know if they use his blood or not, but that's the treatment protocol, is now he's on a maintenance protocol, which means he needs to get blood out every month, and he's fine. He's, his respiratory issues and his encephalopathy have all kind of cleared, but... That's all he's Yeah, yeah, it did clear, yeah, he's fine now. So, um, women who want to have children are yes. supposed to take prenatal vitamins to yes. increase their storage of iron. 
Yes. Do they have okay. I'm glad you brought that up. So, women bleed every month. Well, from the age of 11, 12, 13, right? So, this guy that I was treating started having symptoms in his 30s, which is kind of the right age, 30, 40, 50s for males. In females, it's oftentimes more 50s, 60s. Why? We bleed every month. I lose iron every month. Childbirth. You lose a lot of blood. You've just done a whole bunch of bloodletting. So females typically don't have these symptoms until after menopause because you stop bleeding. So you stop losing iron. So that would be the, that would, so you're not too worried about it in females. Yeah, I just don't know if the increased iron would. That's what I, was I don't know. Ask. I don't Can know if it would be problematic for them to use it. I don't think they would use that. And I, I, I don't work at blood services, so I really don't know. But I do know that the doctor actually told him that that's what he wants to do for his treatment. He doesn't want him to keep going out of age until he gets symptoms again, right? So we need to know that this is a genetic disease. Okay, this is hereditary. That's important. So your parents have you're likely to have it? So now your parents may be carriers and never have the symptoms. But if both of your parents have are carriers, you will end up having hemochromatosis. So you may not know that there is ever hemochromatosis in your family. Because no one may have ever had the symptoms. So it's a recessive genetic Recessive. Autosomal recessive disease, yeah. Okay, so um, it's most commonly in Caucasians. It's really common in Northern European countries and North America as well. Um, and of course, we need to know that it is more common in males than it is in females because we believe it. <coughs> so the manifestations, this is what I'm gonna show you guys, could be anything. You could present with edema of the lower limbs and ascites because it's mainly being stored in your liver. You could present with dyspnea and chest pain because it's mostly depositing in your lungs. You could present with seizures, um, dizziness, and headaches because it's mostly going to your brain. So this is hard to diagnose. Is it like, it's different for different everybody? Yeah. Just because like your body's like, ah, I'm just gonna put it here. Totally. <coughs> Some people, the first symptoms is that their sugars are out of whack and they go into diabetic comas. Now the bronzing, that's not all that, all that uncommon. If you have excessive iron being deposited in the blood, what does water that has a lot of iron look like? It's yellowish brown. That's what the skin's gonna look like. <coughs> so you may see that the yellow or the white of the eye becomes yellow, which may not be jaundice or icterus, right? It may not be liver, it could be hemochromatosis. So the reason this takes so long to diagnose is because they'll go and send you to a respirologist, and then they'll go and send you to a cardiologist, and then they'll go and send you to a neurologist, and then they'll go send you to an endocrinologist. <coughs> and once you now, it's been two, three, four years, you've been sent to all these specialists, and they're like, nope, fine, nope, it's fine, nope, it's fine. And they'll start to do blood work. Yeah, hopefully someone will do blood work, and you'll see the increased iron. Iron is not typically something that is always tested in men, because it's not a common issue in men. Men don't typically have decreased iron issues. 
because I don't bleed every month. So just know that the symptoms could be any systemic issue. Yeah. So is that what that guy looked like? Like, was he bronze? No, he wasn't. Okay. Totally not. Not like the eyes? Nope. 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 For him, it was all brain-related and like lung-related. Those were really the only symptoms that we could come up with. Yeah. Well, the dizziness and the headaches and like yeah. So your symptoms could be anything. I put down common ones like hepatomegaly. The spleen's gonna get bigger and the liver's gonna get bigger if you're depositing things in it. But what if it doesn't deposit mostly there, right? So. You can memorize all of these, but the symptoms could be anything, any systemic issues. Encephalopathy is one of the later stage ones more commonly. So that is something that we can remember. Um, infertility is, uh, if there's a male that is dealing with infertility, I would strongly recommend that this is one of the things that is tested, it's an easy blood test. Um, but because we live in North America, it is more common here than it would be in the south. So for anybody, for any of my patients who are having fertility issues and they know it's not the female, I always say to them, just make sure they get blood tests. Just get their iron test. Done. So the problems. Could you end up with a heart attack? Yes. Could your lungs fail? Yes. Could your kidneys fail? Yes. So eventually you could lead to death if this isn't diagnosed. But any system can eventually fail. Kidneys could fail. So you don't have to memorize the complications. What you need to know is that hemochromatosis is genetic, too much iron in the blood, and in fact what happens is you're ingesting a normal amount of iron, but your small intestines are two to three times more efficient in absorbing iron because you have this genetic disease. Okay? And then of course we need to know what the treatment is. It's the bloodletting, it's the phlebotomy. So get rid of the blood and you've managed the symptoms. If you have this, would you have like a, like, would you compensate longer for like a shock? You were in shock because you had more iron and your body could like process oxygen to all the organs more? Or is it just depends on how, what type of shock? So the problem with the iron is that you could end up, like these, this could cause DVTs. This can cause embolisms. Yeah. So it could actually lead to shock. But you're talking about not caused by the hemochromatosis? No. Like let's say you get shot four times and you're bleeding out, but like you can compensate more. Yeah, you it, it might give you a couple of extra minutes. It might give you a couple of extra minutes, but now problem is that these can congeal, which can cause embolisms and thrombi. Yeah. It'll make your blood thicker. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> So I don't think I, I, we'll watch the video after. We'll see if we have time. So this was, I thought this was kind of cute. He's shooting an arrow at him so that he can bleed. Right? Okay. Next. Okay, so anemia. Who do you think is more commonly going to have anemia? Females. Why? We bleed every month. Okay, so we lose blood every month, which means when we lose, lose blood, we lose iron. So. They have actually changed the um, di diagnostic levels for females. They actually dropped them. So both males and females used to be 14 grams 
and now they've dropped females to being 12 because everybody, well not everybody, so many females were being diagnosed with anemia and they said it's a physiological issue that occurs. It's not something that's ever gonna change that you're menstruating every month. So they did drop it so that there was a little bit more of a normal amount of people with anemia. So for anybody who has anemia or who knows someone who has anemia, what is one of the biggest symptoms? Fatigued, exhausted. So I actually had one lady say to me that when she was a teenager, she could not get out of bed. Nah, yeah, and she would wake up and she'd change positions. She's like, I can't even get out of bed. We actually thought she had severe depression, but it turns out she had severe anemia. So excessive fatigue is one of the big symptoms. These people want to be sleeping all the time. And when they sleep 8, 10, 12, 14 hours, they wake up and they're tired. still tired. Yeah, so pretty, pretty typical. So there's a couple of reasons why this can happen. So you can have decreased erythrocytes, so we already said that. You can have decreased red blood cells. Okay, so that could be one reason why. Or you can have decreased iron, which would destabilize the hemoglobin so you don't have your four oxygen carrying capacity, right? So your tissues are essentially oxygen starved, which is why you always feel fatigued. And you may even have some chest pain because again, you're oxygen deprived and you're fatigued. There is something else that can cause anemia. What if there was a genetic disease that actually attacked your red blood cells? No, hemolytic anemia. We're gonna talk about sickle cell today. So hemolytic anemia is something that you're usually born with or we usually figure out in the first few years of life. But when there's an infant who is exhausted, who is super fatigued, you gotta, and oftentimes they have central stenosis, usually we think about heart with that, but if you've ruled out the heart, Think about um, hemolytic anemia, which basically means it's, it's an autoimmune disease. Your body's immune system is fighting your own red blood cells, so they're destroying your red blood cells. So in that case, you would end up with worse than just anemia. Okay, you'd end up with hemolytic anemia. But anyways, those are more common causes. So if you were to take a lot of NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, okay, so you take Advil all the time, you got a headache every single day and you just pop Advil. So you could end up with an ulcer. You can end up with an ulcer, right? If you have a GI bleed, are you necessarily going to know that you have a GI bleed? Unless your poop is really black and you recognize that, you won't necessarily know. So chronic bleeds through the gastrointestinal system are not uncommon and they can lead to anemia. So things like ulcerative colitis, Crohn's, very common to end up with anemia. People with rheumatoid arthritis, very common that they're anemic. So if you have any other kind of autoimmune disease, oftentimes they kind of start to impact themselves. So lots of other reasons why you can have that. So you can have decreased red blood cell content or like we talked about, you can have decreased hemoglobin. So fatigue is the number one symptom. So if someone tells you they're exhausted and they don't have the flu, and they're not healing from a fracture, there's no reason for it, it's unexplained fatigue, get them to do blood work. Male or female, get them to do blood work, okay? So exercise intolerance, why would that be? Why would you not? 
decrease oxygen carrying capacity. So you do a flight of stairs, you're like, I'm done, right? Okay, the weakness. Why would you have weakness? Decrease oxygen carrying capacity. Are you getting enough blood supply and oxygen to the muscles? No, not really. The headaches are um, quite common. I would say at least half of the people I see that have anemia will complain about chronic headaches. The faintness, like actually fainting, I haven't seen as very, com very common. Everybody look at your fingernails. On the most proximal part, it's very white. There's like a white half circle, right? And then when you go towards like the center of your fingernails, it should be pretty pink. Does everybody agree with that? Yep. Okay, so now what I want you to do, push on it, push on your nails, and release. Does it go really white to that really pink again? Yes. Wonderful. That's normal. If you are anemic, that capillary refill can be slower, or the pinkness of the fingernails will be a little bit lighter. It will be paler. Oftentimes, people with significant anemia will have really pale skin as well. So if you see that, a capillary refill test is easy to do, right? But these are things, like if you're suspecting anemia, these are things you can do on your patients to test for it. And if you're suspecting it, just get them to do a blood test. All right, now the bone pain. Why would you have bone pain? Okay, let's say it's not that. That's not typically the reason why. So what is in the center of your bones? Bone marrow. What does bone marrow do? It makes red blood cells. So if I don't have enough red blood cells, or I know that I don't have enough oxygen carrying capacity, what is my bone marrow going to do? Overwork. It's going to make some more. And if it has to overwork, that oftentimes ends up being painful. So that's where you get the bone pain from, is that bone marrow is working too hard. Okay, so all of those, very common. Um, it's more commonly where you have bone marrow, so femur, ribs, right? Um, but it can be anywhere, but it is more common where you have more bone marrow production, or more um, hemopoietic production. So you will notice that your symptoms are very vague in general. Someone comes in, say they're tired, they're breathing a little bit faster, they feel like their chest is beating out of their, their heart's beating out of their chest, and they have a hard time getting out of bed. What do you think? Do you have the flu? Yeah. Right? That's what I think. Do you have the flu? Is there any psychological issues? Is there any psychosocial issues? That would be my first question. Any fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue issue? But don't forget about anemia, because that would be one of my differentials as well, especially if they're female. It can happen in males, but it is more common in females. A differential, for sure. Yep. But renodes, if you looked at the mucous membranes and they were in a normal temperature, the mucous membranes would be quite pinkish bluish, right? Um, you would see that being different. And they wouldn't necessarily be pale all the time, they would just be pale when they entered into a cold environment, right? Their capillary refill, if they were in a normal temperature, would be fine. Their nails would be fine. So you could start to look at the whole system and, and say, is this the top of my list or would that be maybe number two or three? But yes, differential possibly, for sure. Okay, 
So treatment for this, we already said, is iron supplements. Now, if it's really bad, though, you should do injections, right? Because iron supplements may not be very bioavailable, which means you may actually not be absorbing a whole lot of iron. So they can do um, injections and do supplements. Let's talk about pernicious anemia. So pernicious anemia is a B12 deficiency. <coughs> so pernicious anemia oftentimes will present as a neurological issue. So if someone has a B12 issue, they'll oftentimes complain of numbness and tingling in the fingers or numbness and tingling in the toes. And it's bilateral. It can start on one side, worse, but it is bilateral. Okay, so one side can be worse than the other, but it's both. So what are some other things that you guys can think about that had bilateral neuropathy if it wasn't pernicious anemia? Like what? Give me examples. Okay, yes, okay. So you could have a central discrination that could cause bilateral symptoms for sure. Anything else? MS, yeah, multiple sclerosis for sure, 100%. Yeah. Mm. So most commonly it presents with diplopia, but everybody does present a little differently. And usually the symptoms, neurological symptoms change in variation in time, which means they'll have, you know, dizziness and all of a sudden they'll have numbness and tingling, then they'll have weakness in the lower legs, like it, it, it alters and it changes, but and multiple sclerosis. Oh. Um, anything else that you guys would do, have as a differential? Bilateral neuropathies. What about diabetes? Yeah. Oh, you did? I didn't hear you. Okay. So, is it possible to have some kind of spinal cord issue like a cardiquina? Yeah. Okay. So, there's lots of other reasons that you can have it. Thromboangitis, obliterans, I mean, you can get some numbers and tingling bilaterally. But it w these would be kind of your most common ones. Pernicious anemia. Who typically gets pernicious anemia? Which means a B12 deficiency. Okay. Yeah. So they do say that vegetarians or vegans are more at risk um, because you do get a lot of your B12 from um, red meat. But if they've got a good diet, it's a risk factor. It's not oh, a it's cause. It's people who get um, uh, the, the vitamin C absorbs B12 or something, or when you have So what's that? So one of the, the cause, one of the most common causes is cancer. Cancer or the treatment of cancer. Yes, it could be a risk factor of having being vegan or being vegetarian 100%. I always make sure that if my patients are vegan or vegetarian, I always tell them to make sure they get their B12 checked every once in a while. Um, but if their B12 is low and they're starting to have neurological symptoms, that is one of the most common reasons why. Cancer or cancer treatment. So I would keep that in the back of your mind. Anyways. We're not really talking about pernicious anemia. I just brought it up because we were talking about anemia, but we don't really need to know about that. So iron foods, green, 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 green. Right, so your kales, your spinach, your beets, all that kind of stuff. Of course your red meats, all that, but for those that don't want to indulge in red meats, there's lots of other things that you can eat, green leafy vegetables that have iron in them. So do you eat the metals? Or yeah, cook them. Yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah, okay. cook them. Or can it be golden and, ones? And you know, I don't know. I don't know how much the vinegar would affect the iron, to be honest. I don't know. Is it the I'm not sure. That makes them higher? I'm not sure. 
I don't know. I'd have to look at that. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. Oh, to get the metals? I don't know how bioavailable that is, though. Okay, so we will do this recent patient after if we have time, because I'm afraid we're not going to get through leukemia. So, system. Now, when we say that, what cells are oftentimes affected? When we say the lymphatic system, okay, be more specific, what white blood cells? So, T lymphocytes and B lymphocytes. Okay. Where do T... Where do T lymphocytes and B lymphocytes, where do they come from? The baby B cells and T cells, where do they come from? The thyroid. Like, what produces them? I heard it. Bone marrow. Okay, so hematopoiesis is when the bone marrow creates all your blood cells. So your eosinophils, basophils, your phagocytes, your B cells, your T cells, your red blood cells, your platelets, your thrombocytes, all of that is created by your bone marrow. So bone marrow sends out T cells and they're immature, right? Because they're just baby T cells. So how do they become mature? Where do T cells go to become mature, to be functioning? Thymus, the thymus. So the T cells are going to circulate in the lymphatic system until they hit the thymus. They hang out in the thymus until they become mature adults and they are full functioning. Now B cells, same thing, they start off in the bone marrow, they get spit out, they're just baby B cells circulating around. Where do they mature? Where do they become active, mature B cells? 
and lymph node. Okay, so if I have an issue with the thymus or the lymph node or the lymphatic system, that's known as lymphoma. What if I have baby B cells and baby T cells that are cancerous? That didn't happen in the lymphatic system. That happened in the bone marrow. That's leukemia. So cancer in the bone marrow is leukemia. Cancer in the lymphatic system is lymphoma. Does that make sense? Okay, so this is cancer bone marrow. So now that we know that, bone marrow, we said, makes thrombocytes and platelets. So what could be a symptom of leukemia? What do platelets and thrombocytes do? They clot. So if I had petechia, little blood dots all over the place, I have blood leaking out. What if I get hurt and I have this huge bruise that's not equivalent to being tapped on? What if I have a cut and I bleed for days? Could all those be symptoms of leukemia? Okay. What if I have anemia? My red blood cells, I don't have enough of them or they're not working properly. Are they created in bone marrow? So could I have anemia with leukemia? Okay, what about my white blood cells? So my T cells and my B cells, I told you, come from bone marrow. So they're baby B cells and baby T cells. Could those be cancerous and not working properly? So could I have decreased white blood cell, which means decreased immune system, which means increased risk of infection? So anemia would lead me to fatigue, increased infections, petechia or bruising or bleeding, excessive bleeding, all very common symptoms of leukemia. And you understand why, because all of those cells are built, they're created in the bone marrow, and that's where your cancer is. So we call this leukemia. So leuco always means white, and emia is gonna be for the blood. So we have too much white blood. So this is what happens typically. Your white blood cells are overproduced. Well, actually, they're not overproduced. They're produced, but they live a long time because they're cancerous. They're not normal. So they're supposed, to, they're supposed to be apoptosis, let's say every 30 days. So every 30 days, your white blood cells are supposed to die, and then new ones come in. But now what happens now if these are cancerous cells and they live for seven months? What happens? You have huge amounts of white blood cells. Could that crowd your thrombocytes? Could it crowd your red blood cells? So we call it leukemia because we have too many abnormal or bad white blood cells that are not properly either matured, differentiated. So we call it leukemia as in white blood, okay? So that's where that name comes from. So we should remember this. He might have, he might have put um, blasts. Okay, we should talk about this. Whenever you say a blast, like a lymphoblast, always means a baby cell. Okay? A site always means a mature cell. 
Now this is gonna be very important because if I say acute lymphoblastic leukemia, what does that mean? Okay, so acute lymphoblastic leukemia. The acute tells you this is aggressive, progressive, probably gonna kill you in months. Okay? The lymphoblast tells you it's lymph cells. So it's either your B cells or your T cells that are affected, and it's a blast, which tells you it's your baby B cells or your baby T cells that are affected. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then leukemia tells you, well, it's your reversal of your white blood cells with your red blood cells. Okay, so what if I have acute myelogenous leukemia? What does that mean? My myeloid cells, so we have granulocytes and egranulocytes. Do you guys remember that from AP? Okay, so your granulocytes are like your eosinophils, basophils, okay, which are your immune system. But your egranophils, egranulocytes, are your B cells and your T cells. So your myeloid cells are your eosinophils, your basophils, your macrophages, neutrophils. Whereas your lymphoblastic cells are your T cells and your B cells. So acute means really bad, really progressive. And now it's not my B cells or my T cells that are affected here. It's my granulocytes that are affected and leukemia tells you the reversal, okay? Then we have chronic lymphocytic, that should tell you something, leukemia. Chronic means, yeah, you can live with this for years and with treatments you can survive it. It's slow, progressive, okay? Lymphocytic, what does that mean? The, lymphos, the lympho means it's a B cells or T cells and cytic means they're mature. And then the reversal, okay? Then we have chronic, myelocytic leukemia. So what does that mean? Chronic, slow progressive, myelocytic. So myelo tells you it's granulocytes, cytic tells you mature. So it's your mature cells that are a problem. Whereas here, it's your baby cells that are a problem. So you never even create mature cells. So there's like no immune system, which is why it's always acute, it's dangerous. Okay, so these are gonna be the four categories of leukemia that we're gonna to need to know about. I'm telling you right now, at some point I'm gonna ask you, what does it mean if it's a chronic lymphocytic leukemia? What does that mean? What type of cell is affected? And I'll say A, an immature granulocyte. B, a mature granulocyte, right? Okay, so we need to, we need to understand those words. If it's cytic, it is a mature cell. If it's blastic, it's an immature cell. If you're saying lympho, it's your B cells and T cells, which are your, your A granulocytes. If you're saying myeloid, so myelogenous or myelocytic, then those are your granulocytes. Okay. So we're good with that, I'm hoping. Okay, so we kind of already talked a lot about this. 
we're good with that. Um, leukemia, this is probably um, leukemia acute, acute lymphoblastic leukemia is probably the most common cancer in kids. It's more common in adults, but when you're talking about cancer of kids, it is one of the most common ones. So that's important. And the most common one, not that I'll ever ask you this, is the B cell, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. It's actually the most common one. So this is what's happening. Normally you only have a little bit of white blood cells with lots of red blood cells. Whereas with leukemia, you have all these, you have a lot of white blood cells because they're not dying off like they're supposed to, which crowds your red blood cells, which now means your red blood cells can't work the way they're supposed to, which could lead to anemia. Okay. So we already talked about the classifications, we're good with that. And we already talked about the difference between lymphoma and leukemia. Okay. I'm not gonna ask you the specific causes of each of these, except that cancer treatments cause cancer. So you could put almost, for any single one of these causes, you can put chemotherapy and radiation. Most genetic diseases, especially Downs, have an increased risk of uh, leukemias. They believe that because there's already a genetic predisposition, um, that the bone formation is slightly altered, which now means that the genetic predisposition of the bone marrow is a little, not everybody develops it, but they have a higher risk factor of it. So I'm not, like I said, I'm not really gonna ask you about, um, but do know about radiation and chemo, because that's important. Now, this is interesting, electromagnetic field power lines. If you live close to power lines, they always used to say, if you live close to power lines, you're gonna end up with leukemia. Well, there's been a lot of research around that, and it's very questionable. There's some research that says there's an increased risk, and there's some that say that there's a decreased risk. My second cousin has chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and she grew up in uh, North Bay, and one of the paper mills or whatever used to dump all of their stuff into the river, and that's what they drank, and both her and her sister both have developed leukemia because of that. Now it's chronic, so if they're in their 60s and still surviving, but these things are things you're going to see in practice at some point. The acute ones, probably not, because usually the symptoms come on really aggressively and they progress really aggressively. Um, but I do have to tell you a story quickly. So my uncle, a year and a half ago, called me and said, I'm so tired, I can't even get off the couch. Okay, so he's in, his, he's in his late 60s, I believe. So I said to him, I, you know, so we start talking about diet and exercise, is there any major stressors going on? And so I said, okay, well, you know, up your vitamins and go out for a walk every day, because I was thinking maybe there was something psychological going on, because he had just lost a cat, and anyway. So he calls me back a couple of weeks later and he says, well, my doctor's sending me for a sleep apnea test, for a sleep test. So then he got diagnosed with sleep apnea. And I'm like, he's not presenting like sleep apnea. He can't get off the couch. He can't go up the set of stairs to go to bed. He has no appetite. He hasn't lost that much weight. It's only been a couple of months at that point. But he was like exhausted, like just opening his eyes and he'd have to take a three hour nap. That's not sleep apnea. Anyways, so they gave him a CPAP machine. And I kept saying, ah, I don't know, he lives in Quebec. And I kept saying, I, I don't know, okay, well let's try it for a couple of weeks, but if you notice no difference, like you gotta go back and get more blood work. 
So a couple of months later, he was using the CPAPs, no difference. And now he started losing weight. So I said to him, you've got to go back and do testing. So he went back and saw three different doctors. Finally, the third one did some testing, and he got diagnosed with chronic leukemia. So the first symptom was fatigue, and ex excessive fatigue. And that was the only symptom for a couple of months, really, until he started losing weight. So this is stuff that is going to happen. Leukemia is more common in older individuals. The older we are, the more likely that we're going to have genetic mutations, which means the more likely you are to have cancer. But if it is a child that you are thinking does have leukemia, it's usually going to be acute lymphoblastic leukemia. It is the most common one. So let's talk a little bit about symptoms. That's fine. Uh, that's me lymphoma. We're going to talk about that next week. So let's look at these symptoms. Weight loss, fever, frequent infections. What do you think? I might think, I don't know, maybe you have pneumonia. Maybe you're just really tired. Maybe you've got depression. Would make sense to have any of those. Shortness of breath. Well, you've been sitting on the, you've been laying on the couch for the last two, three months. Okay. Weakness. You've been laying on the couch for the last two, three months. Maybe some tenderness in the bones. Maybe not. So maybe some bleeding. Maybe some night sweats. Once you get to the night sweats, you're like, huh, that might be a red flag. But if you look at all of these symptoms, does anything scream out to you? Like, cancer? Take out the weight loss and take out the night sweats. Does anything else scream out cancer? This and lymphoma are a little bit hard to diagnose because they're vague symptoms. They kind of look like flu-like symptoms almost. But if something is going on for a few months, weeks to months, please get them checked because this is actually pretty common. Lymphoma is also really common, which we're going to talk about that as well. My friend had a kid and she was two, <laughs> like a year old, and she said that she put her down for a nap, the kid woke up, and had like bruising all down the spine, went to the hospital, she had like leukemia. Yeah. Like that was it, no fatigue, no nothing. She's one years old, like totally fine, and then put her down for the nap, woke her up, and her back just bruised. Yeah. And she um, was like, yeah, she was like, I won't show you guys the videos today because we're going to run out of time, but I'll show you the videos. This one boy, his eye just started, like, it just went to the right. There was no other symptoms. His eye just deviated to the right. And his mom was like, stop doing that. He's like, what am I doing? So anyways, yeah, it could be, like, odd symptoms that you're wondering, what the heck is this? Could oftentimes lead to this. But the three big ones, which we already talked about, anemia, which is your paleness, your fatigue, classic, 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 okay? Infections, because your white blood cells don't work properly. You don't have an immune system. Your granulocytes and the granulocytes don't work. So how do you fight infection? And then the bleeding. Really common for your platelets or your thrombocytes to be affected. You should know your top three key manifestations, hint, hint. Okay, those are really common. So how does this get tested? Yeah, you can do an x-ray. You may not see anything. You can do an ultrasound. You're not going to see anything. Blood work. When they check for your red blood cells and your white blood cells, that is the big one. And then once they see that on blood work, they should go and aspirate, either take a, a piece, like a little particle out of your bone marrow, or biopsy your bone marrow. Look at it underneath the microscope, and they'll be able to see that the cells are different. They're carcinogenic. They're not supposed to be, they're not typical cells. Okay, so that's typically how it will get diagnosed. The CT scan is really important because you want to know, has it metastasized? Has it affected any other system? Right? Has it gone to liver? Has it gone to bone? Has it gone to lungs? 
Um, other than that, leukemia, they may have lymph nodes. We're going to talk about um, non-painful enlarged lymph nodes. May be presented with leukemia, but not always. Very, very, very common lymphoma, which we'll talk about next week. All right, anyways, radiation and chemo treatments. Guess what? They cause cancer. They cause cancer. They cause leukemia. But that is still the mainstay of treatment. So next week I'll show you the, the, uh, the videos. And they treat these kids with chemo and radiation. Currently, that is the best form of treatment. Yeah. Oh, my God, you're way too young. Oh, my foot's asleep. <laughs>